All right, as we turn now to Hebrews chapter 4, and to our last few weeks in this chapter, we want to look at some important points. First of all, we mentioned last Sunday that this verse that we're looking at today, 4.14, really begins what scholars believe to be the second, if you will, major section of this letter. Now, we've talked for a long time about that first section, uh, about a, well, I don't know, long time, right? About that first section, nearly a year. And uh, that first section was dealing with the covenants, wasn't it? Really, ultimately, the covenants. It was talking about the greater nature, the greater sufficiency, in fact, the sufficiency, if you will, of the new covenant in Christ Jesus, Christ's sufficiency. And it tackles it from a, a lot of angles, doesn't it? I mean, when you really think about it, it starts with the idea that Christ is greater. He's glorious. There's no question about it. Go through that exordium. Look at it again and talk about how glorious our Christ is. He is exceedingly glorious and great. And then it works through the rest of that chapter to talk about Christ in comparison to the angels and how He is greater. They are servants, but He is Lord. He is Son. Great statements made again that talk about Him being greater than the angels. And why is that significant? Chapter 2 comes in and begins to speak about that the old covenant had sure results, punishments, condemnations attached to it for those who disobeyed or did not believe. And so, if that's true of a covenant mediated by angels, then what about a covenant mediated by God's own Son? It's sure to carry much more serious consequences. Now, again, this is all set out by way of saying you can see that this covenant is greater because its mediator is greater. That's what's ultimately being established. And we spoke about the fact that as we come to chapter 3, we would say, well, what about Moses? He was the other mediator. Well, the author says, hold on, I'm coming to Moses because Christ is greater than Moses as well. Moses was great, a great servant, but he's not the son. He's not Lord. Christ is Lord. And so we see again, both mediators of the old covenant addressed, and in both cases, Christ is greater. But then he uses that to make the point that there is a danger taken from the life of Moses that we need to heed. That you can be near, if you will, the promise, but not enter it. You can fall short of the promise. Though you saw the workings of God, though you were in the presence of the people of God, though God had done signs and and miracles, you might not make it. You might not be there. You might not enter the land of rest. Well, who pictures the entering of rest, if you will, in the Old Testament? Joshua. Because it is portrayed as the land of rest. And Joshua took them in. You'd say, well, yeah, Moses didn't, but Joshua did. Joshua is a picture, if you will, of the sufficiency under the Old Covenant, except the problem with that is they didn't keep the land. They never fully had it. They never fully had all the land that was promised. So you say, wait a minute. Joshua, the Old Testament Joshua, was not sufficient. He couldn't bring them to the fulfillment of all the promises. And we talked about the subtlety here that's addressed, but it's an important one throughout the New Testament, of the fact that the Old Covenant is not sufficient in the sense that it shows us what God requires of us, but doesn't enable us to meet that requirement. Now, if you've been walking through Pilgrim's Progress, you you have that picture, don't you, of the dusty room. An interpreter shows it to Christian, and he says, this room is, symbolizes the human heart, and it's covered with dust, which symbolizes sin. 
And the law is like a person who comes with a broom and begins to sweep it because it reveals to you how dirty the room is. It reveals to you, the law reveals to you how dirty your heart is, but it cannot do anything other than stir that up. It can't remove it. That's what it's saying. Paul addresses this in Romans, doesn't he? That the law gave strength to his sin. How do we see that? Parent says, there's cookies in the cookie jar. Don't get in there. And as soon as the parent leaves the room, all that kid's thinking about is, oh, a cookie, that sounds good. He didn't even think about cookies until his mom told him he couldn't have one. The law works like that. The law points to what we're not to do and stirs up rebellion in us, not by any flaw in the law, but by the flaw of sin in the human heart, rebellion in the human heart. So all of that is addressed. And we can't argue that the rest of God was reached under that old covenant terms. Why? Well, because why is David later talking about it? That if you hear his voice, hearken to it. Heed it. Do not rebel as in the days in the wilderness. Because he says, today if you hear his voice. And this author says, and today if you hear his voice. So if that promise was fulfilled in the days of Joshua, why is it held out in the days of David and of the author of Hebrews? So we addressed all of that in depth over the last however many months we've been looking at that. But the point is, it couldn't do it. Christ alone could do it. Christ alone could take His people into the land of promise. Only Christ. He's the trailblazer, the captain of salvation. He is the one who leads us and subdues it, if you will. He is the one who achieves it for us. We follow Him. We put our trust in Him. We achieve it as we are in Him and not outside of Him. So that is what this is establishing. The sufficiency of the new covenant and of the new mediator of the one who purchased this position for us. Well, that brings us to another question. Okay, well, that's fine, but your word tells us to be careful because if we have claimed participation with the people of God, we've claimed that we've put our trust in Christ, you're giving us warnings. This text is full of warnings. We've already seen multiple warnings, haven't we, about how great a salvation we have in Christ to not neglect it, to pay more careful heed to the things that we've heard, lest we what? Drift away. That's a warning. What about the Exodus picture? Warning, 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 warning. Don't be like them. Listen, believe, trust. They never had faith. But we come now even to a warning here that we looked at last Sunday about being diligent to enter the rest because the Word of God is living and powerful. You see, there are two things that that uh, we are warned will find us out in our unbelief, in our false motives. They are, first of all, the Word of God. Now, we can deny it, we can overlook it, we cannot heed it, but the Word of God will call us out on our motives. Why are we doing it? What is our true belief? What is our true reasoning? Because we recognize that the problem here is some people talking about leaving the, synagogue, or leaving the church to go back to the synagogue. So what are they going to say? Well, we're still going to hold on to Christ. We're going to go back to Moses. And I think what this author is saying is the Word of God will find you out. It will convict you in your wandering, in your unbelief, in your rebellion against God because you, like the children of Israel, want to turn back. Egypt, slavery, but we might not die as we will in the wilderness, we think. In other words, 
Pharaoh took better care of us than our God does. Let's go back to Pharaoh. Well, in a lot of ways, what are we saying here? We liked it better under Moses. Moses took better care of us than Jesus does. We were safer in the synagogue. There's no persecution over there. It's more comfortable over there. So again, all of this is a warning, isn't it? A warning to to what? Be diligent to enter the rest. Be diligent. Don't take it lightly. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted because you may end up being found out to be like those in the wilderness. But that isn't the only thing that we're warned here about. Not just the Word of God that will find us out, but God Himself who has eyes to see our hearts. We said last Sunday, and it's obviously true, I can fool any one of you. Maybe. I mean, right? There might be some way I can fool you. Maybe I can't fool you. Maybe I'm not as clever as I think I am. But, but I might be able to. I might be able to fool my kids, my wife, maybe. People have done it, haven't they? Kept secrets from their family, and they never knew. But I'm not going to keep a secret from God. I'm not going to be able to hide it from Him. He sees all things. What is it? What does it say? There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to him. There's no covering when it comes to God's eyes. He sees it all. He knows it all. That's why we say he's omniscient. He knows all things. And what it really means is if there is something he doesn't know, he's not God. Because it is one of the attributes of God that he is omniscient. And so again, we must give account to him because he sees all things, knows all things, We're not going to fool him. He will find out our true motives. Even if I say, I still love Jesus as much as I ever did, but I'm going to go back to Moses. What this author is saying is, the Word of God finds you out. The Exodus example is your example. But even if not, you're not going to fool God. Even if somehow you convince us your interpretation is right, you're not going to fool God. On the day of judgment, you will stand before him and he will say, you wanted the law. You wanted that. You didn't want Jesus. You did not trust the sufficiency of Jesus. And we could go to many places where Paul says more or less this, doesn't he? Be careful about taking any part of the law upon because you take the whole of it. And so again, as we look at this, what we see is this warning that's given that God sees all. Be careful about the motives. Well, the question we'd come to then is if God knows all and sees all, and if all of us are sinners then what hope do we have? What hope can any of us have? And the author wants to come now to remind his hearers and us today as hearers of that hope. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, as we think about this, I want us to think about two points this morning. First of all, a call to hold fast our confession. And second of all, a call to remember our high priest, which I think are really the two main points that we need to think about here. So, We see here a call, an exhortation given to us to hold fast our confession. Hold fast to it. Now we know what that means, to to grip it, to hold on to it, to stand upon it, to not let it go, not let it 
be gone. But this entails that we first have to have a confession, doesn't it? You can't hold fast to something you don't have. Now, these believers to whom this author is writing and speaking, they have had a confession. They've made a confession. They have confessed Christ is Lord. They've said, we are sinners. We, we need the salvation that only comes in Christ. In this case, these are Jewish Christians. So they said, we had the law. We recognize now the law really only shows us our sin. Christ is God's remedy to that problem. Christ came. He gave His life. We believe in Him. We are if you will, placed into Christ Jesus. We stand in His righteousness, our sin imputed to Him on the cross. That is the answer. That is what the entirety of the Old Testament was pointing to, fulfilled in this one whom we have claimed to put our faith and trust in. Now, that's their confession. But it's interesting here because the word that is given to us here for confession, homologia, it actually means the same word. That's literally what it means. The same word. What he's saying is, hold fast to saying the same thing you've been saying. Hold fast to the confession. The word that you've said over and over and over again. Don't let it go. Don't change it. But again, that is what they're talking about, isn't it? Because they're saying, I'm not going to make that confession anymore. I'm going to move back to the synagogue where just my presence has its own confession, doesn't it? I mean, if I stop being here and I'm preaching at a Catholic church, what are you going to infer from that? He's become a Catholic. right? He no longer holds any of those evangelical beliefs. If I go begin somehow to find a synagogue that will let me preach or teach there, and, I'm, and you know, well, he is teaching the Torah and he's teaching all those things, you'd say, oh, he's given up on Jesus. He doesn't believe in him anymore. This is the very thing this author is talking about. This sort of crazy situation happening where they would go back to the synagogue where their presence is its own testimony and it's not the same word. It's a heterologia. It's a different word. A different word. And he's saying be careful about different words because the confession you once confessed and have repeatedly confessed is the only confession that saves So if you're confessing a different confession, what does that mean? Now we've dealt in depth with what this means and tried to explain that the author here is not saying so much that they've lost their faith as they've evidenced they never had it. That's what he says. The wilderness generation is the example he gives to say they never believed. When they heard the message, the same good news that you've heard, maybe in a slightly different form, but the salvific message and work of God, it wasn't mixed with faith in their heart. It did not avail them anything. Why? They didn't believe. And God's testimony of that generation is they always went astray. They never believed. They never obeyed. They never trusted in Him. And we walked back through it, haven't we, over the months to see that time and again. He would say something, they would say, what? No way. No way, we can't trust God. And this author is saying, what's your situation? Except you've come into difficulty and you're saying, I don't know if I can trust God to remain here. Standing on this testimony, this same word, I don't know if I can trust Him, that I should stand in this same place saying the same thing. It's easier to walk away. To have a different word. Now, again, I think 
what they're probably arguing, because he's making this point about the Word finding them out and God seeing what's in their heart is, they're going to claim that they aren't saying another word. Well, we're going to the synagogue, but maybe it's an opportunity to witness. You know, I don't know how God will use it, but maybe I can go back to the synagogue and blend in and be quiet for a while and then get an opportunity to witness. Well, that sounds like a great motive, but is that your motive? Or are you just scared, just looking out for yourself, willing to sacrifice your testimony that Christ is Lord and Savior because it's more comfortable for you? And if that is it, how are you any different than those we just spoke about? Who got into the desert and said, I I don't like this. It was better in Egypt. It was better in Egypt. Give us back to Pharaoh. Give us back to Pharaoh. Here they're saying, give us back to Moses. Give us back to this because it was a little bit better. Now we'll claim, again, some things. But again, is it true? Or, as in the wilderness, as God Himself declared, and this author has made clear, is your rebellion, is your disobedience the best evidence of what your heart really says? Again, the the thing that we find again and again that's being told to us is, the constant rebellion demonstrated what? an evil heart of unbelief, right? That's what it demonstrated. So again, he's saying your turning away and going to the synagogue would similarly show an evil heart of unbelief. You don't trust God. You don't trust Him. So again, what do you need to do? You need to recognize that that same confession you first held to. Well, what is that confession? He's not talking about all the confessions written in church history. He's talking about the gospel, the gospel message here. Probably if we wanted to have some kind of of, uh, confession or um, creed that would be closest to it, the content of the Apostles' Creed, more or less, right? That all Christians have pretty much held to. Some things in there that the wording throws people off on. But for the most part, that Christ is Savior. He is God. The Father is the creator of all things. Christ came into the world to save us. Right? That there is a Holy Spirit who transforms our hearts. There is a church that is the called out people of God. There is all these things that we proclaim, that they've proclaimed. We are sinners in need of a Savior. The law did show us that. It took us by the hand and it led us to the one who was to come. The other prophet Moses spoke about. The one all the Old Testament points to. It led us to Jesus. He is the one who came to give us, if you will, the answer to the sin problem. And as Paul argues in Romans, what is the answer to that? God isn't going to just forgive sin, like flippantly, He'd be a corrupt judge. But He did desire to save sinners, or He wouldn't have sent His Son. And so Paul says that the gospel is the answer to how He can be both the just and the justifier. That's the whole thing there. Couldn't be answered in the Old Testament. How is God just and the justifier? Well, there were temporary pictures, but a promise of one who would come. And you claimed you recognized it's Christ. It's Jesus. You claimed you put your faith in Him. You claimed now you have life. You've been renewed. A new creation in Christ. You've claimed all of these things. That was your confession. That was your word might even think like we say today, you gave us your word. That was what you testified to. 
You came in amongst us. We're all in the same danger. We're all in the same tough situation. You said you were with us, right? You said that you trusted in Christ. But you're not holding to that same word any longer. Your testimony is changing. And you're moving back and away from what you claimed you once believed. You need to hold fast the same word, the same testimony. Now, there are things that are secondary, right? You could be a a Baptist and you could come to a different understanding of ecclesiology and and think, I I like this idea of presbyters and and elders and and a presbytery over a group of churches and I'm going to become a Presbyterian. Nobody's saying you walked away from your confession in Christ Jesus. Or maybe you're a Presbyterian to go the other direction and you read a book on Baptist covenant theology and you say, you know what, I think they've got it right. I think that covenant theology is a little bit more correct than what I'd read in the Presbyterian covenant theologies. And so you decide, I'm going to be a Baptist. I believe that is the truth. I'm going to stand with that. Nobody says you've walked away from your original confession. That isn't what's happening here. This isn't a slightly altered position on a secondary or tertiary matter. This is walking away from first-degree matters. Walking away from Christ as the only sufficient Savior. Walking away from the public testimony that it's in Him that we are saved. That there is no other hope. That Moses was not the Redeemer of God's people ultimately, but Christ is. In whatever way Moses redeemed or led the people of God, he did it only as a picture and foreshadow of what Christ would do. That's it. Foreshadow and picture. Christ is the fulfillment of all those things. And so again, you are not standing on the same testimony. So that's what he wants to have us think about. You've got to be at those gospel basics, the non-negotiable parts. Well, what are they? Well, you can't deny the incarnation. You can't deny the deity of Christ and stand where you must stand in Christ. You can't deny His sinless life. You can't deny His atoning death. You can't deny His conquering resurrection or His ascension to the right hand of the Father. You can't deny any of those things. Because if you do, by definition, you're not holding the confession in the first place. But if you hold the confession and you now have a different word, you come and say, you know, I was reading Rob Bell the other day, and he's convinced me that the incarnation is not a primary doctrinal point. Or, probably more dangerous to most people, I was listening to Andy Stanley on the TV the other day. And he convinced me, the incarnation doesn't matter. It's a secondary point. Congratulations, you you just basically uttered a second word from what the church has always said. You've put yourself out of the orthodox camp and may not even have realized it. And so my friends, this is a warning. Be careful that you know where you stand and don't say a different word. Give the same confession. Hold fast. Hold fast is not a term that we think of that you just kind of lazily do or haphazardly do, is it? Holding fast means to be focused, right? To be on guard, to be diligent as a word that was just used here. All of that is important. So again, we must recognize this. One simply cannot walk away from these things. 
and act as if there's been no change. But I would also have us remember that there's another danger that we read about in chapter 2 very quickly. It's a greater danger maybe in the church because like what we just talked about, these examples that if people haven't learned what they need to know, they can compromise on without realizing it. And this, I believe, is why in chapter 2 the author tells us that we must be diligent in what we have been taught. We give heed to it. Why? Lest we drift away. Not to go back and preach that sermon again, but you, we talked about being at the beach. Now you can be in the ocean and you're jumping up and down. And the next thing you know, you're hundreds of yards down the beachfront, aren't you? That's the image. You didn't even know what happened. You look back and go, where's our stuff? You've got to find your way back. And the author there says you can miss the port. So again, we need to be mindful and recognize our high priest. And that brings us to our second point, a call to remember that high priest. So how do we do it? How do we hold fast our confession? Well, it's simple. We just simply profess the same word. That's what he's saying. Profess the same word. Don't change your testimony. And we've talked about who these individuals are and what the danger is, what they might begin to, at least by their presence, begin to confess. These are people in trial and tribulation. They're being urged now in this moment to hold fast their original confession. So how do they do that? By looking to themselves? Their own strength? No, it's not what the author is saying. They look to the one they've supposedly always looked to. Now, I've made this point. I think this author believes they they did look to Jesus. He believes that they are people of the heavenly calling, brethren. He believes that. He's crying out, don't prove me wrong by what you do. All right? So what is he saying here? Continue to look to the one in whom you put your trust, supposedly. The one you claim to trust in. The one who was sufficient to save you. To deliver you from death and sin and all those things. You profess that. The answer is the same. Look unto Jesus. Look to the one who justified you, took your sin as far as the east is from the west. Look to the one who you've been professing. See, all, the, all our needs are met in Christ. All our needs are met in Christ. That's what this author wants them to know. And we can see this. He is our high priest. Think about for a moment how he's described as high priest. Well, you'll notice immediately he's described as a great high priest. Megas, great, great. What does this mean? Better. Better than Aaron. Better than the Levitical priesthood. If you don't believe me, we'll get there, right? This author is going to spell that out for you. But we can just take the Cliff's Notes introduction now, can't we? He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the priesthood God gave in the Old Testament. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Some of them are given to you here in shorthand. Look at the second thing that's said. He passed through the heavens. What do you know about the high priest in the Old Testament? He passed through a curtain. He passed through a curtain. And how often? Once a year. The high priest could abide in the direct presence of God for a time, one day a year, and only after much ritual washings and process and sacrifices for his own sin. None of that is the case with Christ. He doesn't pass through a curtain. 
He passed through the heavens. He didn't enter into a room which represented God's presence. Christ is eternally in the presence of His Father in the heavenly tabernacle. He passed through the heavens and entered in and in fact was enthroned at the right hand of the Father. The priest king, the glorious priest king at the right hand of the Father. So He's there making intercession for us always. Not once a year. Interceding for us always and perfectly. And how do we know that? He's the Son of God. That gets to the nature of why He's a perfect priest, doesn't it? Because a perfect priest is appointed from among men. He's got to represent men. We already saw that back in chapter 2, didn't we? He must be able to empathize with our needs. He must understand something about us to minister on our behalf. But he also has to be in the presence of God. So a man can do the earthly side of that, and God alone can do the heavenly side of that. So I guess what you'd say we need is a God-man. So is the incarnation really just a dismissible part of the story? Or is it essential to the story? Because unless Christ is fully God and fully man, he cannot do this. He cannot abide permanently in the presence of God, at the right hand of God, being God himself, and know our challenges, weaknesses, temptations, and be able to give us help in our hour of need. You see, all of this is pointing to why Christ is greater. And why we don't just need Him for salvation, but why we need Him day by day in our walk. Because He is our priest. Whatever difficulty or trial or tribulation we're in, don't walk away. Turn to Him. This is when you need Him most. The trials and tribulations that you're dealing with are not reason to leave Him. They're reason to fly to Him. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Ask Him for help. He's faithful. Faithful and perfect in His ministering. Now we're going to see in the weeks and months ahead an extended look at this and and how He is the perfect high priest. But we start with this. We need Him in that priesthood. If we are going to be His people and we're going to make it day by day through challenges and struggles, then we realize how weak we are. In fact, we were talking about this just before church. As we get older, we realize more and more how much we need Him. Through many valleys and sappings of strength, and we realize that it's in our weakness that His strength is made manifest, right? We see it in our weakness when we go, I can't handle this. He says, of course you can't handle it. Of course you can't. But I will give you the strength that you need to deal with this. God has blessed us in so many ways with an advocate, a mediator, a redeemer, and also a high priest, and then a comforter in the Holy Spirit. We've been given everything we need for the journey. And if we're on that journey, this author says, then you will be, you will remain standing fast. If you don't. What does that say? You have neither part nor lot with us. So stand fast on the word you've been proclaiming. The same word, not a different word. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear that. 
Because we live in an age where there are many words being said that are not the same word that has traditionally been said. And so we need to know what we stand on and we need to hold fast to that confession. Trusting in Jesus as both our Redeemer and our glorious and faithful High Priest. Amen.